All right, you're back on the popular show with me, James A. Smith. Of the left electoral resurgences of 2015, Syriza, Podemos, Bernie, Corbyn, Portugal, maybe the most successful in 2015, the centre-left Portuguese Socialist Party rejected the austerity uh, measures that the country had complied with following the Eurozone crisis and went into a supply and demand arrangement with the far left, the Communist Party and the left bloc. This strategy has been rewarded and last week, uh, on January 30th, Prime Minister Antonio Costa has been rewarded with a very considerable majority uh, in the general election uh, in what looks like a case of inverted pasocification, excuse me, where the centre-left party has thrived by cannibalising on support for the radical left. To help us make sense of the election uh, and the state of the left and the right in Portugal, it's great to welcome Joana Romero, who is a contributing editor at the Portuguese media platform, Setenta Equatro, as well as the UK's Navarra Media and The Guardian. Joanna, welcome to The Popular Show. Thank you so much for having me on. This is great. Uh, really glad to, to have you here. So um, could you start us off by just describing something of the journey that the Portuguese Socialist Party has gone on since 2015 and, and something of its dynamic with the wider left? Absolutely. I mean, you've already mentioned the precedent, I guess, of 2015 um, in that faithful year in which we had uh, three of the uh, once uh, labelled pigs, um, uh, which stands for the initials of Portugal, Italy, often Ireland is added as a second I there, Greece and Spain, i.e. in other words, the sort of lower tier of European Union countries and, and Eurozone countries as well, um, who, who uh, had suffered uh, and, and gone under with the financial uh, crisis of 2008 um, and, and its consequences. Um, and we had three countries at the time going into, into electoral uh, scrutiny in 2015, and you mentioned it was Greece, Spain, and Portugal. And Portugal had a sort of vault face, right, in which... Um, we had an austerity implementing coalition government of the right um, at the time that was not very liked, but still liked enough to possibly get uh, a, a minority government. In fact, they did uh, originally get a minority government um, through in the elections originally. And, and I think they took place in around September, October, I think it was early October. Um, however, it, it was such a minority government that uh, the first step a Portuguese parliament takes is to approve of a budget um, when when parliament uh, uh, gets in session. Um, and that minority government, which was already based on a coalition, again, I repeat, um, of the centre-right PSD, a, a term that across the rest of the world is very confusing because it stands for the Social Democratic Party, which is centre-right. It's the equivalent to the Tories in, in the UK. Um, but um, it's given the way in which things got shifted, the rhetoric shifted across the across the political spectrum during the Portuguese Revolution of 1974. It's actually called the Social Democratic Country uh, Party. 
Um, and so this party associated itself, aligned itself in a coalition uh, in government and then to run in 2015 with the Christian Democratic uh, Party, uh, uh, the PP, CDSPP, uh, as a long acronym that they hold, um, which has also developed quite significantly in the last few years, and but we'll come on to 2022 in a minute. Um, so together they couldn't really form more than a minority government. And so as soon as they tried to pass their, their new austerity budget for 2015, after the elections, um, it failed. And so the Antonio Costa, the prime minister incumbent, um, and at the time the leader of, of the Socialist Party was um, invited by the president. Portugal is a, a presidential uh, a democracy. Um, was invited by the president to form a government. Um, and the NPS opted to, after um, uh, I think it was about two weeks of, of very intense negotiations, to form that, um, as you said, supply and demand governmental agreement with the far left. Uh, in that case, it meant the Communist Party and the left bloc. Nowadays, uh, the left um, in parliament in Portugal also counts with uh, another organization called Livre. They currently have uh, one MP. Um, Livre stands for free, by the way. Um, and, and also one could consider within the space of the center-left the uh, animal rights party, I mean, it's often called animal rights party. It's a bit unfair. They don't just care about animal rights. But nonetheless, um, since animal animals is in their name, uh, we call them the animal rights party, PAN. Um, but at the time, uh, although PAN did elect a, a couple of MPs uh, in 2015, in fact, it was their entrance onto the scene, um, this, this uh, the, the coalition, sorry, the governmental agreement, the governmental arch that was built was between said the communist party and the and the left bloc to the far left and the socialist party and this uh, uh agreement was called the juringonza or the contraption translated into english uh, and it worked incredibly well so i'm telling you this long story because i think to really understand 2022 uh and the elections of of now going on to two weeks ago um we really have to understand the 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 political progression and the political journey Portugal has gone on in the last uh, seven years. Um, so we come from a, a quite severe austerity program between 2011 and 2015 under said uh, far sorry center right coalition government, um, and we go on to an anti-austerity budget political program from 2015 until 2019, um, led by the Socialist Party, but very much pushed uh, in many respects by the far left, again, by the by the Communist Party and the left bloc. Um, and this proved to have an enormous success. Now, this anti-austerity program, particularly from a socioeconomic perspective, wasn't only bolstered on what radical the radical left would want to see, i.e. by massive investment, perhaps uh, national infrastructure, uh, rebuilding of, of spaces of, of worker sovereignty and workers owned factories, whatever you might want to imagine as a sort of communist uh, ideal or, you know, communist nirvana. Um, it was in great part created uh, by an investment, yes, in, in, in the social uh, infrastructure and the welfare state and investment into it, but bolstered financially by um, really a massive opening of the Portuguese uh, economy to foreign capital. 
Um, and that was, in fact, part of the criticisms offered by the far left and the left at large uh, at the time. But it worked. Um, Portugal was seen as a safe country to holiday in, uh, to, to invest in by foreign capital again with, uh, yes, a socialist party governing, but a relatively mellow socialist party at that, you know, uh, lowercase socialism, so to speak. Mm. Um, or maybe, maybe, maybe... The, you know, uppercase socialism. I'm not entirely sure anymore what out of these two would be uh, the most threatening to to the status quo. But regardless, it wasn't perceived as particularly threatening. And also at that particular point across Europe, I have to say, there was already the mood towards um, austerity was changing, right? Like at this point, we have we had had at least five years of, of austerity governments across Europe. The the um, the the ticker was moving towards uh, against uh, policies of austerity and towards policies of of uh, social investment um, because things were getting a little bit too too acrimonious, I think, for for just general like you know Central European management to to work well. And of course, you know, Greece uh, was was uh, no doubt uh, a great uh, mover of this of this, um, given that it led the anti austerity. Uh, international protests, so to speak, particularly from the south again for the pigs. Um, and so Portugal was used very much as a kind of, you know, on the one hand, ideal student, but also as a case study, you know, like, look, a country that has a government that is happy to to inject some cash into uh, uh, into the welfare state, into, the, into pensions, raising salaries by a minor amount and coming from a very low bar, by the way, uh, Portuguese uh, minimum wage and average ages, uh, wages are in the lower ranges within um, the OECD and and within within uh, the bloc as well, the European bloc. Um, so you know, has to be taken into context. But nonetheless, um, it was it was a government willing to to do all those improvements. Uh, and even if at, at times through um, the sort of impulse of again as said some foreign capital investment, uh, a lot of uh, transitioning of. Uh, the Portuguese economy in even further into tourism and and all the other areas um, laid to it, you know, hospitality, uh, housing, property speculation, etc., um, which which brought its which brought its downsides. But most of all, for the average Portuguese person at that point, it seemed like this is great, this is good, uh, and and the Socialist Party has been reaping the effects of that government ever since. By twenty nineteen, uh, when you know, we were due elections once again. Um, it had increased this vote share enough to have a minority government, but a minority government that did not need either the Communist Party or the left bloc to govern. Um, it could sort of at times rely on them to pass its budget, for instance, but in other positions, perhaps more uh, conservative positions it might have taken, it could count on on the uh, center-right opposition to support it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, it, it was a bit more, you know, loose from, from or, or freed, so to speak. Costa as a prime minister is a lot more freed to reign without without the encroachment of the far left. And, and I think everyone sort of suspected that the socialists and, and in particular, Costa, who, you know, has a lot 
to do with the success of the Socialist Party as a very, very deft politician that he is. You might love him, we might hate him, but he's an, a, very good at what he does, basically, both internationally and, and nationally. Um, but I think everyone knew from 2019, from the results that they got, that inevitably halfway through his term, he would want to shake things up and, and lose the far left altogether if he could. And he took a gamble um, with with. COVID, with the pandemic, and with the uh, rescue packages being, Portugal was the first uh, country to, to be awarded, to be to basically hand in the documentation and be awarded the rescue package by the EU, um, to be approved, basically, its rescue package. Um, and so with a new budget having to be approved for 2022, having to have into consideration how we were going to implement and repay uh, the funds uh, that were coming from, from the EU, again, a reminder, this is the reason why I'm mentioned the austerity years that kind of legacy of having to pay back debt to having like you know Tro the troika the, the the imf and the european central bank and brussels on top of portuguese uh, uh, um, sovereignty and you know all its diktats being put through government still very present in many people's minds so having to do all that um the 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 uh, socialist party proposed a, a budget for 2022 that the, the far left didn't feel uh, it could support. Um, it was uh, flying a little bit too close to, I wouldn't say necessarily austerity, but way too close to a, a conservative budget than, than what uh, the left bloc and the Communist Party felt was needed in a year, of, still years of pandemic, still years of crises. Um, so, so yeah, so Costa found there the perfect opportunity to let uh, his government fall uh, in order to push for uh, early elections, snap elections. How's that um, been experienced by the left? Hey, sorry to interrupt. Hope you're enjoying this free episode of The Popular Show. If you're liking our stuff, if you dig the questions we ask and the voices we platform, maybe you could help us grow the project a little over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. For £3 a month or your local equivalent, subscribers get access to our hottest episodes first, as well as regular subscribers-only episodes. Um, it, I mean, it strikes me just how different the experience of being on the left in, in Portugal through the last seven years uh, must have been compared to being in Britain. Uh, in Britain, a, a kind of a relatively coherent young left has been formed uh, had expectations raised and has been sort of spat out in a, a state of, of, of melancholia, really. Um, whereas, uh, I guess, in, in Portugal, there's been less kind of cause for expectations to be raised so high, but also um, <laughs> less less melancholy. Uh, but I, I guess they're, they're, the, the, the organised left is in a sort of situation now where it's... It, it, it's, it's Kind of outlived its usefulness. I mean, I mean, just at the level of sort of emotion and culture on the left. Like, how, how does that? How has that been experienced in Portugal? Well, there are two different things. The youth vote, um, whilst it tends to be more progressive than than the elder generations, as it is here, doesn't necessarily equate the left vote. Portugal. Uh, has a different history from 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 Britain and in particular and and from a lot of the rest of Europe for that matter, uh, and in particular, it still lives 
from a sort of cultural heritage perspective, very much on the legacy of of the revolution of 1974, which was a socialist revolution um, by, you know, there is undoubtedly, unquestionably. Um, and in particular, not just the day itself, right, the, the revolution of bringing down the, the uh, ultra-conservative, Catholic-conservative, or even fascist, depending on how you prefer to define those terms, um, regime that, that we had for, for over 50 years. Um, but uh, this to say that um, the, year, the, the months that followed, the year and a half that followed uh, the 25th of April of 1974 were incredibly uh, uh, significant for a lot of values that Portuguese people still hold as much as, you know, being anti-regime. They were, those were 18 months that, uh, saw the real creation of a Portuguese welfare state from the bottom up, rather than you know, a lot. Of course, a lot of in, institutional uh, uh, f- fundings, like uh, creating of, of the Portuguese SNS, which is the NHS over there, um, were were done. The National Health Service, I should say. I don't know if your listeners are all um, British or aware of the British terminology. As as an Anglo-Portuguese journalist, I end up uh, uh, jumping between the two. Uh, forgetting that some people might not just know all the acronyms. Um, so yeah, of course, the creation of, of the Portuguese National Health Service um, was done by the state, but a lot of the impulses and, and the, the, the public debates and the ideological space that was created was created from the bottom up. Um, and you can see that in a lot of anecdotal evidence, um, say, for instance, in, you know, demand for, for, uh, Children's services for for crashes, you name it, and people occupying buildings in order to to mostly buildings that were once significant to the regime, right? In order to create spaces for for you know job centers and 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 again like crashes and and kindergartens and and schools and whatever else was needed, um, as well as you know creating residence commissions about what we're going to do about reorganizing our local neighborhood and and how are we going to um, restructure uh, uh, municipal uh, decision-making processes um, or alternatively workers committees of course created you know they popped up everywhere and those were 18 months that were uh, of course precarious one might say but but for a big chunk of the population incredibly emancipatory Um, and so you know, you, you don't have that in Britain, I'm afraid. Quite the opposite. You have a, a recent history. We have a hi- recent history um, of, 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 you know, the destruction of, of workers organizing, of working class empowerment, um, you know, through, uh, you know, needless to say, through the Thatcher years onwards. So, so um, you know, there, there's that. But, and so the, then, so, Consequently, the, the left vote in Portugal isn't just based on sort of uh, millennials and Gen Zers who um, have seen their material circumstances, you know, incredibly destroyed versus their, their parents' generations. Um, but also, you know, also a lot of our parents' generations vote for the left. A lot of our grandparents' generations vote for the left because they were working class people who, who, to whom the left means uh, anti-fascism, to whom the left means the creation of worker spaces and, and workers' voices. Um, so there's that. I just wanted to add that as a, as a quick uh, contextual note. Um, 
how the far left saw the the last few years, I mean, it's it's really a, a split situation because the far left um, had to decide, certainly in 2019, um, how close to position itself to the Socialist Party uh, in order to push the Socialist Party into a left space, right? Because the Socialist Party, much like the Labour Party in, in the UK and a lot of uh, social democratic organizations across the Western world had gone into a space of you know, sort of third wave vism, right? Like, uh, or if you like to put it again in British terms, Blairism uh, kind of, kind of um, politics. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the left saw within this opportunity to bring the Socialist Party back into government, also and without the majority, an opportunity to push the Socialist Party into a, a more left situation. And it has to be said, Antonio Costa also saw in it an opportunity to reinvent the Socialist Party in order to recaptivate its a voting share that might have been lost at one point or another from, you know, the Socialist Party's Blairite years, let's call it, uh, into today, right? Um, so the, the Socialist Party also knew how to change, unlike the Labour Party in, in, in Britain, I, I, I suspect, uh, at this point. Um, so, you know, if, if Keir Starmer had any sense, he would see a lot more opportunity in the Corbynite years than I think at this point his 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 um, leadership office does. But that's a slight side note. Um so, so the left, the, the the left had to see this sort of, you know, had to balance had this game to balance out, you know, how close do we position ourselves? Um, on top of that, it had to uh, think at times how do we position ourselves when there is a rising far right, and and now we really are talking about a, a populist, proto-fascist, and certainly regime apologetic uh, far right in Portugal, which I'm sure you also ask me a bit more about. Um, whilst at the same time not losing its own identity and sense and vote share, right? Like, uh, of course, people who are loyal to the Communist Party or to the left bloc will probably, certainly members, will continue voting. But there is a swing uh, a demographic that might fluctuate between the more radical wings or more progressive, more socialist-oriented wings of the Socialist Party and the so-called far left, the left of the Socialist Party. Uh, uh, left, um, and and it was a difficult act to to uh, put on, and I think unfortunately this year uh, in the in the general elections it 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 didn't well pass muster clearly because um, both the communist party and the left bloc lost uh, over half of its well the left bloc over half of its vote share, um, so you know it was, it was a real. I wouldn't say necessarily fall from grace, but it was a, you know, um, a slap in the face, I guess, in some respects. It wasn't totally unexpected, by the way, I must say. Or if for those who thought it was unexpected, they 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 might have been kidding themselves because we had presidential elections last year, which everyone knew was a bit of a show to re-elect the incumbent. Marcel Rebelo Sousa, our president, is, is very popular. He used to be a, he's a veteran of Portuguese political scene, and he has been a was a political commentator on television for a very long time. So he's very well known and 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 very beloved, certainly of a certain older generation. Um, so, you know, it, it did feel a little bit like a circus to reelect the incumbent, but it was also an opportunity for the far right once again to put itself forward um, and to make a big fuss and to to, you know, sort of 
market itself. <laughs> you know, any publicity is good publicity for them. Um, and and um, and that and in that election, we saw uh, the vote share of the left bloc and the Communist Party also plummet. Uh, quite quite worryingly, um, and I think people shouldn't underestimate these things as litmus tests of of general elections. Uh, by, by by when I say these things, I mean you know any other election, be it presidential, regional, or European Union, they have their own uh, you know colorings and their own uh, phenomena happening. Because obviously, when you vote for a president, you don't think you're voting the same uh, representation or you're not looking at the same types of representation that you would when you vote for general elections, you know, they, they have different parameters and, and most voters will know that more or less, even if just intuitively. Um, but nonetheless, they still will reflect something about the, the popular mood about, you know, the zeitgeist um, at, at the very least. And, and so the left bloc and the Communist Party at that point, perhaps, you know, and hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm not in either of those parties. So, of course, I am very privileged to be able to say this. It's probably a lot harder to, to, to do. Um, but could perhaps since January last year, so that's January 2021, um, have distanced themselves. And I think they did. And they did try. But perhaps they should have seen it coming. Perhaps they should have created it um, a more vociferous opposition. And it's it's funny because I did write about that right at that point, including about the the results. So at the time, I did say so in January last year, I did say in my analysis of the presidential elections, you know, this just comes to show that if the left doesn't create its own identity and create, on the one hand, a united far left front against fascism, but also then uh, um, an individual, you know, sort of mobilization around its constituencies so that, you know, it when it comes to general elections, it's in a much better position to to fight off both the socialist party as well as the far right. Um, it will it will it will feel the effects, the negative effects of that. And unfortunately, that's that's what we've seen. Now, all that said, Again, I feel bad saying all this and being overly critical of the far left because I still vote within the spaces of the far left. Um, I, I think that something that certainly persuaded a lot of voters were, were the polls happening towards uh, the end of the electoral trail, mm, which okay. indicated a possible tie between the center-right and the center-left. Um, so between the Socialist Party and the Social Democratic Party. And the reason why that spooked a lot of people that vote within left progressive spaces, including the Socialist Party, but certainly to the left of the Socialist Party, um, was not so much, I mean, I, I'm sure that many of them didn't like the idea of, of a center-right government, but there might have been some voters who might have at times through the history voted for the center-right and were spooked by the polls because... The center right, i.e., the PSD, um, formed a governmental coalition agreement with the far right in the Azores um, in 2020. The, that agreement has since crumbled, basically. It didn't work out. But that precedent really freaked a lot of people out. And they wondered whether the leader of, of the center right, the leader of the opposition, might if with enough votes to form a minority government, 
stretched out his hand to to the far right. Um, and I think that, and of course, this was a, a rhetoric also pushed forward by by the Socialist Party. By the way, it didn't it didn't just come from sort of you know people's and voters' intuition. It was it was questioned by the commentariat very often. A lot of journalists during the debates asked the leader of the Conservative Party whether he would uh, uh, ever consider stretching out a hand hand to the far right. The far right party, by the way, is called Shiga or Enough. Um, yeah. And it, it, you know, molds itself very much on the sort of political and ideological tramets of, of Trumpism, I guess. You know, it's all about politics of, of division and populism. And a lot of its uh, slogans are against corruption uh, and against, you know, the sort of status quo. They are the anti uh, uh, um, establishment party and so on. Uh, so, you know, everything we've seen across the rest of the Western world when it comes to the far right, you see it there as well. It's it's literally a poor man's version of, of all that cobbled together. The rock and roll nurse shook me dead to my knees. She went to my head. What are, what are Cheka's demands? I, I mean, I want to get back to the, this question of um, of left strategy in Portugal and, and what can be learned from the, the fate and, and the situation of the radical left there. But what 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 are, what, are, what is uh, the, the sort of base for, for Cheka? Is is it uh, a kind of geographically determined thing? And what are they demanding? What what's what's their analysis of what's wrong with Portugal and what they want to happen instead? So they're public demands so the more popular the more the 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 official line um is as the anti-establishment party uh that will shake things up uh and i'm quoting verbatim really um and and then in that process um the two things that they are publicly happy to to um express that would be seen as uh you know, unpalatable to most people uh, in in the liberal world uh, within a democracy are first and foremost they're incredibly anti. Well, they're, they're very anti welfare state, and so one of their slogans in the last um, couple of years has been they are against a benefit de- dependency, uh, and they use the term benefit dependence. Uh, so anyone who depends on welfare. Um, uh, which is, you know, obviously a small amount of people in Portugal because the welfare state isn't very wealthy at all in Portugal. Um, so, but none th- at the risk of, uh, um, I don't know, making this sort of sound determinist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems a, almost a, a bit kind of retro. It's it, that's almost like um, kind of two thousands style. Mm. Yeah, within within uh, within it's, the it's, British it's context, for sure. Tea Party. Farage kind of before Brexit became this coded as as in, on some level economically Precisely. left. Uh, UKIP were, were calling for the end of the NHS mm. and and uh, insurance model for healthcare and so on. So it, it's interesting to see um, that the Portuguese right hasn't adopted Trump and the kind of Brexit cons- uh, 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 kind of um, the Brexit movements. Uh, claiming of a certain economic left um, Well, they have. They, they have because in the process of then blaming or, or, or using the, the 
quote unquote, benefit dependent as, as a scapegoat. They also point out, and publicly, and this is publicly, uh, the uh, gypsy and traveler community in Portugal as the, okay. the sort of biggest example of, of, of people doing this, which is, again, a sort of coded way of saying the foreigner, right? Because, of course, traveler and gypsy communities in Portugal are Portuguese. Um, but in order not to say the problem is, you know, are the people who come from country X and take our jobs, that sort of trope uh, of, of the far right and of, of xenophobic um, uh, rhetoric, they use the, 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 the traveler community, um, the Roma community as, as, as the scapegoat, um, which is incredibly unpalatable in Portugal as well, by the way. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, um, traveler phobia, Roma phobia, um, is 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 as a, as a as a prejudice relatively uh, still uh, you know present um, and visible in Portuguese rhetoric, but again, like it, it sounds, you know, it's it's a bit difficult to to um, to explain this perhaps to to a, a listener who wouldn't know the Portuguese uh, geographical uh, divisions, but. Um, the Roma community lives mostly in either uh, coastal, urban, southern spaces, or, I mean, this is the majority, right? Of course, there's like Roma people everywhere. Um, but, uh, or alternatively, uh, there's a, a relatively large community on the, um, I mean, it's not country, I mean, it's, it is countryside, but, you know, these are cities uh, by the border in the spaces by the border with Spain and southern, central and southern Portugal, a region called Alentejo, which is a region that is uh, that mostly still votes for the Communist Party, by the way. Um, but indeed, due to state divestment from these communities, the poorest and most vulnerable members of those communities which include, but don't only uh, uh, incorporate the Roma community, will have a higher percentage of, of benefit uh, uh, requests. Not huge. It's not something, you know, the, the, the massage numbers of the far right are, are ludicrous. Um, but this is where they, they pick out um, the kind of the, the possible... Um, they basically use, as the far right always uses, very real fears of impoverished communities, i.e. lack of investment, lack of jobs, lack of infrastructure, and in fact, divestment from, from those very infrastructures and uh, support, state infrastructure support. Um, and, then, and then pick out a, 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 a scapegoat and use it as a, as a divider. But, you know, that's not the only way in which they've been, they've been these are the more obvious and more um, public spaces in which they've, they've operated. Um, but they've also coded, or at times not so coded, uh, have appealed to uh, a very ultra-conservative, often Catholic uh, voter demographic, um, a petit bourgeoisie uh, within the suburban uh, metropolitan areas of, of Lisbon and Porto, so the two biggest cities in Portugal, de facto, um, who who do feel, you know, hard done by. Again, very similar to what UKIP has done, you know, the peripheral spaces around London, Manchester, and so on. Um, so, you know, like they, they've tapped onto those demographics and really been successful uh, with them. But also they've, and this is why I was saying before that um, 
I'm sure you would be mentioning, well, we would be mentioning CDSPP, the Christian Democrats, um, later into the conversation because they've de facto robbed most of the votes, if not, you know, 90% of the constituencies of, of the social, of the um, Christian Democrats in, um, in Portugal and Christian Democrats who, again, I remind you, were in a coalition government from 2011 to 2015, have not returned a single MP in 2022. So, so what has happened to that constituency for a, a more, a, a take it a more conventional um, Christian conservatism? Is, how has that uh, transition um, occurred, whereby the sort of populist right has, has been able to cannibalize their support so much? Well, in part because, you know, just because we had a revolution doesn't mean that the people that supported the regime don't still live in Portugal. You know, they're still there, uh, you know, and, and, and it's... And is it generational like that? I it mean, is I'm thinking of the way that... Uh, Germany, for example, it's actually the the passage of of time and and the the loss of generational contact with uh, the, the, you know, that that fascist past that has allowed um, a resurgence of it, Uh, whereas it is is actually as simple as that kind of older older population in Portugal stays kind of loyal to that. There's definitely a a generational question there, Um, but... I think it would be very naive of us to to just say, oh, you know, it's 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 a very a much older uh, constituency that will soon die out. Um, a because, you know, yes, uh, seventy four. It's not that long ago. So a lot of people who were in the regime and supportive of the regime uh, are still alive and still vote. Um, but you know, there's also a, a generation that was that were teenagers and possibly not supportive of the regime when the revolution happened, who, who do vote, as well as a younger uh, demographic um, that I think very often stems from, uh, you know, like a, a more uh, lower middle class space, people who, uh, you know, expected social mobility to happen for them, uh, particularly from lower middle class to upper middle class at some point, given that they had higher education, invested in their in their development, and through the social and economic crisis of, of the Portuguese uh, or the Southern Europe context, you know, post-financial crisis, but in Portugal even before then, to be honest, you know, we did have several uh, IMF uh, packages, rescue packages across the ages long before 2008. Um, so, or 2010, let's say. Um, so, you know, Portugal has constantly been been on that knife's edge. But um, but there is definitely a younger a younger voter for, for uh, particularly a male white voter uh, within the spaces of the far right who likes the idea of, you know, I am not getting what I'm due uh, and, and these are the people who are going to, you know, bring it for, to me. And, and that's the sort of anti-identitarian uh, uh, politics that they also bring aboard, um, as well as, you know, as said, like the sort of um, very uh, just, you know, fascists. Under 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 a guise of, of of democracy. That said, or Democratic Party. That said, Shiga itself, a, a, a great part of the program of of Shiga, um, defines the system we live under. And by system, I don't mean capitalism. By the way, I mean democracy uh, as a failed system. A failed regime is the words that they use. Um, and so they are 
in favor of returning to a past regime and by which, you know, they mean the, the, the dictatorship in which Portugal lived uh, under, under, under the, you know, under Antonio Salazar uh, for, for most of that, for most of it. Um, so Antonio Oliveira Salazar. Uh, so, so yeah, um, I mean, you know, yes, they, they define themselves as a party that lives in a democratic system, but I think ultimately they could well be defined as an anti-democracy, if not an anti-democratic, certainly an anti-democracy party. Um, uh, and yet here we are with, with 12, MPs from from Shiga from enough um, in in Parliament right now. Where does COVID come in uh, in all this? Uh, I mean, as I understand it. Portugal has had a relatively good pandemic uh, compared to uh, a lot of places. So went into lockdown, but has avoided the aggressive measures targeting the unvaccinated that we've seen across Europe and in North America, uh, and in virtually all cases has been a kind of big gift to the far right uh, and to uh, far right mobilisation. So um, Portugal's sort of avoided that trap has has covid kind of coded these political developments in any like particular way well the anti-vax movement in portugal has also associated itself with 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 Shiga, like across the rest of europe with the far right um but it's a small very small albeit vociferous but very small uh, uh, uh group of people in part, as, as you already mentioned, uh, Portugal went into relatively early lockdown, preventive, um, preemptive lockdown. Um, I don't like cultural relativism, but it was it is it, it was very interesting to observe how happily, in a way, the Portuguese population went into lockdown when it was first announced. Um, considering that you know we saw other populations, perhaps not at the beginning, so against it. But but slightly more skeptical of it as a measure, um, and and you know I remember being in in London at that point and calling my parents who had already been a week and a bit into lockdown when our lockdown was announced uh, in Britain and um, or in England, and uh, and you know like it was just sort of a given. It was never thought to become what it became which is several months but it was always given as like yeah well you know we have we have a, a pandemic and and therefore we we sort of need to pr prevent this from becoming a tragedy um a couple of things there to mention again to contextualize the portuguese minds here portugal has the lowest number of icu beds in europe so you know a, a crash of, of the national health system could well happen um and people know it and people rely a lot on the national health service um there's a lot of privatization of, of healthcare happening in portugal and increasingly happening uh, if anything um but nonetheless much like in in in, in Britain, the SNS, the Portuguese NHS, is seen as a sort of, uh, you know, crown jewel of, of the Portuguese welfare state, uh, and rightfully so. We we do have a good a good national health service um, from a technological and expertise and 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 procedure point point of view and, and logic behind. It's the same. It's the same. By the way, it's very much mirrored on the NHS. So it's the same uh, logic um, in terms of in terms of its uh, structuring. Um, as as in 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 the UK, um, 
so there, there was that. I think people, you know, treasure auth- uh, health authorities and, and believe them and are happy to, to go along with whatever might be advised. Again, there was a sense of trust in the Socialist Party at this point in the government, uh, still very present. They had just been re-elected, you know, this is, uh, they've been re-elected late 2019. So by early 2020, that was still very much there, uh, more or less, you know, with a couple of, of caveats, of course, as politics go. So, but if we look beyond the theater of, of you know, parliamentary politics and the day-to-day lives in the general notions of, of you know the average voter they were still very much doing okay um and then as it progresses we see that first lockdown being very positive you know portuguese people see other countries with similar demographics and stats doing really badly like spain and and italy in particular you know there's that sort of affinity with our brethren states doing really badly and we're doing relatively okay um then a reopening of things in the summer which let you know i think portuguese people if they're not allowed onto beaches and out in the sunshine they might get a bit grumpy but you know they're allowed that um we kind of went um into winter of 2020, relatively unscathed. It did went a bit more very badly, in fact, by the by Christmas. So what the government decided to do was to allow people in, basically not impose a lockdown um, in the Christmas of, of 2020. And that really spiked numbers, in, especially in death numbers um, per capita um, by, the, by the beginning of 2021. And at that point, things went, you know, got a bit scary for the Portuguese government in terms of approval rates and so on. In fact, Portugal had one of the highest numbers of mortality, if not the highest number of mortality, um, again, uh, per per uh, capita uh, of the entire world at that, at that point. Um, so, you know, uh, again, an, a very aging demographic. Portugal has a very aging population. So, you know, all the, all the usual factors that aggravate those numbers were there. Um, but it, it was bad. Its rescue to the government and to the country at large was a vaccination policy that was implemented early and implemented with an incredibly efficient task force, or very quickly, what which very quickly became a very efficient task force, and nearly virtually hundred percent, well, ninety something percent of the, the population got double yeah. vaccinated um, within record time. And so we went from being one of the countries with one of the highest mortality rates to being one of the countries with some of the lowest mortality rates, but also with double vaccination completed. Um, again, we, it's a nation of 11 million, so, you know. But you could have thought, you know, in, in, in if you're going to make comparisons between Portugal and the UK on this basis and, and the political uh, uh, outcomes of, of, of COVID, um, from, a, again, national health uh, system infrastructure uh, and, and, and cultural appreciation, and a political uh, approach, both governments, both Antonio Costa's and Boris Johnson's governments, uh, decided to bet, put all bets on, on vaccination at that point, right? It doesn't mean that it, it, the crisis in and of itself didn't help the far right when we think about the economic and social outcomes of the crisis, you know, like a increase in precarity, job precarity, increase in unemployment, um, uh, but the way in which the socialist government has tried to ameliorate or, or compensate for it has been through uh, wage increases, through median, median and minimum wage increases, which again come from a very low bar. Um, but in terms of the daily lives, average of the average population uh, feel like uh, an immediate improvement. 
Can I ask about um, strategy for the the left? I, I mean, something you said um, earlier on suggested to me that one kind of pathway uh, would be that the the radical left no longer uh, playing this role in in everyday government sort of rebrands itself as the, the the sort of vanguard against this growing fascism um i, I mean it, it strikes me there that their that their you know morality or principles aside there may be a, a sort of strategic danger of sort of making that the radical left's job so that it sort of abandons its aspirations to um, have institutional control. I mean, one interpretation of the Bernie Sanders adventure was that in simultaneously seeking to uh, get the presidency while also, um, you know, many of his supporters uh, modelling themselves as anti-fascists fighting against uh, uh, the resurgent right under Trump, that part of the problem there was that they actually made a, a safe pair of hands Joe Biden, a more attractive prospect. Well, if Trump is as bad as uh, these guys say, if fascism is just around the corner, then what we need to do is uh, is revert to the, the most kind of moderate centre-left leadership. I mean, it's possible to interpret something of that in play in the, in this election that, that just happened, that, uh, you know, voting for the, 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 the Socialist Party rather than the radicals that you might feel more temperamentally close to um, seems like the thing to do if indeed the fascist threat is as as great as uh, even the radical left say. So uh, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. There, there, there's an obvious path, but there is a clear sort of danger of disappearing um, into this sort of, you know, superhero anti-fascist role that, that abandons uh, the, the kind of institutional aspirations that so many lefts have cultivated in the last uh, in the last few years. No, absolutely. I mean, there was a lot in these elections to be and you know, we only have to see what happens next. So it's really a, like let's see how this then um, manifests itself in 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 government. But um about voting itself, the vote the act of voting. Um there was a lot of it that that had to do with what it's called in Portugal the useful vote, but in in Britain we call it a tactical vote, right? Which, as you say, is this sort of sense of compromise. Well, if, if fascism is around the corner, um, I'm going to vote for the progressive center um, in order to avoid it because it's it's you know um, it's possibly more like it's more likely to to gain power and therefore to to stem to to um, put a barrier. Um, to the rise of the far right, there is definitely there is definitely some of that. Um, I think I think there's two things that the, the the far left in Portugal and and I and I agree with you by the way that the far left cannot simply reimagine itself or or um, make itself to be perceived as the great uh, adversary to the far right. It's it's somehow the other side of the coin or whatever. I think for a series of reasons, and not just because it weakens its position, uh, or it weakens potentially its its vision of of reaching power, its its aim of reaching power. Um, I think it's also uh, damaging to understand uh, left far left politics or left wing politics as as the antithesis to to fascism alone. Um, they're not yeah. mirrored images. Um, so, um, so yeah, or, or, you know, like, yeah, two sides of the coin or whatever you want to metaphor you want to use. Um, what I do think needs to happen is 
again, maybe, maybe I'm, you know, I feel like so privileged to be saying these things. If I, if I rule the world, this is what will happen. Um, I think on the one hand, the far left does need to organize together. And there is something about a united front and, or a popular front that needs to happen, not parliamentary or, or electorally speaking, actually, but from a, a political and political culture uh, uh, and from those spaces and on the ground that needs to happen, As, which in Portugal is easy to do, again, through the ev evoking, but not only uh, evoking, of the, the legacy of, of the revolution, which is an anti-fascist revolution as well. Um, so that, that is easy to do, uh, whilst at the same time bringing onto that space and onto those debates and into that, into that movement, potentially, um, all the new, and when I say new, I mean since 74, um, Portuguese identities that have uh, been created. And that means, you know, a lot of uh, second generation Portuguese people who, you know, will not have uh, a direct, necessarily a direct relationship to the revolution, or who, if they do, their relationship is completely different from the white left uh, spaces that understand 1974 as, as a working class emancipatory space, you know, for many people, particularly of, of former colonial uh, countries, 74 feels like, you know, if to, to equate 74 with liberation within the revolution alone is to be very myopic about the things that happened, you know, 74 also um, allowed, which is a horrible way to say it, but, you know, this is the case, for an end to colonial war, you know, the, for, for, for a lot of uh, Portuguese people of uh, uh, black descent, in most cases, but not only, uh, of, of former colonies, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, um, before 74, there had already been independence movements happening for years that had been violently suppressed. And so these are spaces that are progressive. These are spaces that are of the left. And these are spaces that the far left already often engages with, but needs to continue and, and augment its, its, its um, uh, interaction with. And there is also, by the way, to, to add to this, um, a quite significant, particularly in urban spaces, uh, Eastern European demographic migrant, uh, and by now second generation, so Portuguese uh, demographic in, in Portugal that is also attacked and that is also uh, a target of, of racism and of, of um, prejudice uh, in Portugal. And they too, uh, you know, uh, need to be part of this conversation. Um, so it's not just the traditional and the former colonial communities or for, you know, descendants of former colonial spaces um, that are that are part of, of this debate, as well as the Roma and so on. And this leads me on to the second thing for the far left. And it's this final thing, the far left. And this is something I keep banging on about um, the far left. And this works for Portugal as well as other countries. The far left really needs to understand that at this point in time, what it needs to do is to create viable offer of of plenty of you know of, of the bounty of, of you know of possibility um mm -hmm. to in order to truly surpass what the socialist party in portugal or social democratic organizations in the western world are offering i.e it needs to say yes we do want to save fair hands yes we want political and economic and social stability but we also want more than just the bare minimum 
We want more than just a couple of cash injections into the National Health Service. We want more than just some minor incremental increases to the minimum and median wages in our countries. We want to, to, want to totally reinvent, or not reinvent really, because again, it would be like reinventing the bloody wheel, but we really want to restructure the system under which we live. Um, we want to reimagine our communities in ways in which they would you know, rule themselves almost semi-autonomously, or if we want to call it Soviets, we can also call it Soviets, um, and, and, and in ways that are sustainable, you know, uh, uh, social and, and, and environmentally friendly, that, you know, create new opportunities, that envision a future rather than just envision solving problems of the present, right? Um, and, and the left in Portugal can do that. The left in Portugal, as well as I think the left in, in, in the UK and in other countries, um, can do that in great part because we find ourselves in an environmental looming and an increasingly present environmental crisis that really posits some fundamental questions about the system under which we live and that allows for these you know spaces of, of answers that go beyond the traditional uh, uh, answers that social democracy can offer um, and and that is is is, is doable right now um, whether you know like uh, the far left in Portugal is a little bit too black and blue at this point, a little bit too bruised after the electoral punch that it took. Um, it, it remains to be seen. I think that this is really where, as you pointed out, the danger of aligning itself um, to the Socialist Party uh, could really happen. Is If it flies too close to the Socialist Party, it, it ends up lacking the resources, the space, the breathing space to re- uh, position itself or to remind people that its position is to offer viable but very, very different solutions to the ones offered by the progressive status quo. Um, even if the Socialist Party, re, you know, remarkets itself not as a neoliberal but purely as a liberal space, the far left is not a liberal space, is an anti-capitalist, uh, eco-socialist space. Um, and there, there is, again, and I think there is a lot of audience there for it, uh, again, as you pointed out earlier, especially within the youth vote, but not only um, because of where we find ourselves in material terms, historical material, material terms right now. Well, we watch uh, developments on the Portuguese left uh, with great interest and we keep an eye on your work as well. Joanna Romero, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. No, thank you. Oh.